Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Matea reminding you that this show cannot be made without you. If you've been thinking about becoming a Canada Land supporter, we're having a pretty great sale right now. You'll get premium ad-free feeds of all Canada Land shows, discounts on merch from our store, and exclusive bonus episodes, like a behind-the-scenes tour of the federal budget lockup, more of Boris Johnson's trip to Canada, and of course, more of us yapping about what's hot in politics right now. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Canada Land supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special offer for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. Just go to canadaland.com join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. My therapist told me that I have permeable boundaries and I guess I might have some people-pleasing tendencies and I want everything to be sunshine and rainbows and lollipops. But as every other generation before me, I want to see the kids and the grandkids of people of my generation to live in, I guess, more of a sunshine and rainbows sort of world. Hey, it's Matea Roach, and this is The Backbench, a podcast about how I feel like that one clip of Steve Buscemi from 30 Rock where he's like, how do you do, fellow kids? I'm going to be real. So according to all of the widely accepted definitions of generational boundaries and also various PR employees at Sony Picture Studios, I am a member of Gen Z. But I don't really feel like I get Gen Z, even if we accept that generations are a real thing. I don't totally feel like I'm up to speed with what that is. A few months ago, my producer Aviva, our colleague Tony and I were in a Tim Hortons in Ottawa chatting about how we find it hard to keep up with the trends and how we just don't really know what the kids are into these days. A young guy who was maybe about 15 or 16, definitely high school age, walked over to us. He had been eavesdropping on our conversation and he decided that he should throw in his two cents. He told us that no, Gen Z doesn't really listen to podcasts. They do love to watch a good video, apparently. And yes, everything does go down on social media, but not the same platforms that the three of us would have used back when we were teenagers. This conversation got us thinking, how are young people engaging with politics in this country? Are they? It's impossible to make total sense of how all Gen Zers engage in politics. Any age cohort is going to be a diverse group in terms of the region that they live in, whether they're rural or urban, their political leanings, other demographic factors like race, ethnicity, religion, queerness, all of that. But it's also fairly clear to me that some young people are ready to burn this shit to the ground if they have to. On this 100th day of the student strike, downtown Montreal was a sea of red. The crowd was huge and riled up. And among them, Greta Thunberg, the Swedish teen who started these Friday strikes. I mean, I'm part of a generation that grew up on stories of political rebellion. Many literary-minded Gen Zers have fond memories of reading series like The Hunger Games and Divergent, which are all about young people tearing down systems of oppression. But we've all also heard the narrative that Gen Z is disconnected, disinterested, and buried so deep in their screens watching, like, Subway Surfer videos and Trisha Paytas mukbang, Tati Westbrook, Bi Sister, that they don't give a shit about the politics going on around them. I think it's time to put that stereotype of apathy to the test. 
We sat down with five young people to ask them about how and why they engage in politics in the ways that they do. My name's Jenna. I'm 20 years old. I'll be 21 in October. I'm originally from Alberta, specifically Calgary, but now I go to school at UVic. My name's Alex Stevenson. I'm 18 years old. I recently graduated from high school. I've lived in Calgary, Alberta my entire life, and uh, I'll be starting to study history and political economics in the fall. My name's Azad Gill, and I am just recently 20 years old. I'm from Calgary, Alberta, but I go to university in Ontario. I go to Western University, where I'm doing a dual degree in political science and business. My name is Tanya Vijayendran and I'm 26 years old. I'm based in Toronto. I got my interest in policy when I did my undergraduate degree at the university. I did a major in health policy and international development. My name is Sam Reed. I'm 30 years old. I am from Nova Scotia. I'm African Nova Scotian, seventh generation African Nova Scotian woman. I'm an artist, community worker, community youth worker that is dabbling in the political game. Yeah, I guess that's how I would say that. You'll hear a lot of what they had to say sprinkled throughout this episode. We don't know our neighbors anymore and we don't have those conversations. And so we don't talk, we get more polarized. We don't talk, we don't make change. And it's this vicious cycle that kind of allows itself to repeat. And we also sat down with Samantha Roosh, who helped me put the pieces of those conversations together. She's the executive director of Apathy is Boring, an organization that tries to engage youth in Canadian democracy. Will Gen Z put out the fires of political polarization, or will they drown in social media's sea of misinformation, clickbait, and endless, endless scrolling through things that really don't matter? Let's get into it. Are there any, like, common misconceptions, you would say, that older generations, so let's say people that are maybe, like, 50-plus, have about younger people? I mean, I think there's always the, and I, I think this is like tale as old as time, but like the the idea that young people just don't get it, that they don't realize what they're asking for, that they don't realize what the consequences of their dreams, ideas, solutions are, and that they're just like sort of frivolous with their asks or their their ideas. I would say the biggest misconception is naivete. Maybe there's just this general opinion that we don't do enough or that we're not interested. Older people consider young people to be radical when they may just be voicing their own opinions. That Gen Z only really feel comfortable in online formats. Folks of older generations or different generations might view Gen Z as less hardworking. What trends are you seeing in terms of young people's political engagement across the country? Well, first of all, young people are incredibly diverse. So it's like, it's always talking about a group of people that have like very divergent backgrounds, experiences, perspectives, motivations, goals, whatever. But I think by and large, it's really important to sort of mention that one of the big trends, I think one that I think is both promising and kind of concerning is that young people are very, very, very engaged in issues. I mean, I'm of course worried about the environment, but I also struggle to sometimes disconnect them because it's hard to say like if you look at climate change you're going to see a disproportionate impact on certain populations and then you look at why that's happening and you've got economic inequality and you look at why that's happening and I would say probably environment and healthcare are up there. The justice system, money, just the way that things are structured that people that need the most don't have access to the 
least. And yeah, environmental racism, to be honest, especially being here in Nova Scotia, is just a huge issue here. And it comes up all the time. Issues of Indigenous reconciliation, I feel like that's a really important thing that needs to be platformed and that needs to be fully exercised. The 94 calls to action have not been fully implemented. Employment, we won't be able to own houses likely like in the next few years. Cost of living, the climate crisis. I guess for me, the common thread that I see with these issues is there's a sense of them disproportionately impacting youth, perhaps. And like, I guess that these issues not only affect youth disproportionately, but like the actual level of that impact is like really extreme, right? That we're looking at things like, you know, people spending like 50% of their income on rent or things that are ridiculous that massively impacts quality of life. Or, you know, the notion of climate that it's like, okay, if you're young, you're probably going to live longer than people who are older. And so we're going to be dealing with these issues more into the future. One of the gaps that we see is that connection between trying to move public awareness and culture and connecting youth directly with the institutions that have the power to sort of legislate long-term change on those issues that they're so engaged in. And young people do want to see that they're able to have an impact and influence. And and it does take a long time to influence political culture and political outcomes. So I think what we want to try and do is instill a sense of patience, I guess. But also we're talking about issues that are so urgent that it's really challenging to to keep that hope and motivation alive when you're talking about issues that feel incredibly existential to young people. I guess like my question then, so young people are politically engaged with issues. When Apathy is Boring started out, it was sort of in response to low voter turnout. Has voter turnout changed at all over the 20-ish years that Apathy is Boring has been active, like amongst youth? And do you feel like that's still a meaningful way to measure political engagement? I think that's the question. Like, I think that's a really important question. I feel like there's a tendency to measure political engagement in voter turnout or things like party membership, political party membership, what have you. But I actually don't think that's the only or maybe even sometimes most meaningful way to measure that. I definitely think it's really important to vote. Every election that I can vote in, I have voted in. You know, lots of people don't think that, you know, voting for school trustees is a big or important thing. But really, no matter what level, a vote is a vote. And that's your chance to give your say and your opinion. For a representative democracy to work, we have to all kind of go out and share our opinions. I just was able to vote this year and my the Alberta provincial elections was the first time I was actually able to vote. And of course, I went out and voted. I would say that voting is important. Is it the end all be all? I don't necessarily think so. And that's why I believe the power of grassroots work is incredibly important. And I also think that we need to start thinking of ways to exercise politics outside of the traditional realm of voting and of federal, municipal, provincial politics. And also, given the amount of polarization that we're seeing in a lot of political contexts, sometimes it's hard for things to A, get done, but also B, stay done. And a lot of those, I guess, political apparatuses have disempowered a lot of people for a long time, and there needs to be voting and other things going on. Voter turnout has gone up among young people. In 2011, it was around 39%. 
had the younger age cohorts. And now we're hovering between like around 55, low to upper 50s. It's kind of been in that range since 2015. So that being said, like that has improved massively because things like voter turnout are so easy to measure political parties and elected representatives and public officials use that as a proxy for who their base is, who they're getting support from. And they use that to shape their outreach efforts and to shape their campaigns and which issues they speak to with priority. And I think that one of the things that's so fundamental to feeling like you are participating in a democracy that actually represents you is to feel like not only are you electing a representative into office, but you're also being advocated for once they're there. And I think if there's not that communication loop that closes where young people feel like there's actual progress and solutions being put forward on those issues, then I don't think they're going to feel and they don't feel like that system is a, a pathway for them to influence and make change on those issues that they care about. Initially, when I was 18, there was kind of that excitement about like getting to vote for the very first time. And then over the years, there was a sense of disillusionment because you could vote for the progressive candidate, even if they get in like at a counselor level. I was just not really sure what they were doing in my area. Like I wasn't hearing about any sort of initiatives or any sense of like youth civic engagement or just engagement in general. It's just like, oh, now this person is representing our ward. It's like, okay, I can vote, but I don't really feel like I'm making a difference. And it was this very passive, like I'm doing it because it's my right. Like, why shouldn't I? But there was no actual belief that it would monumentally make any difference. I would like to see some actual like reform in the electoral system, which, you know, was promised a while ago. A lot of the reason that I see apathy in my peers is that they genuinely don't think that their votes count. We're young, we tend to lean further left, and we're from Alberta. That doesn't show. Our votes really don't tend to show up as a general rule. You know, we've been talking a lot about specifically electoral politics and how young people do or don't engage with that. But what are some examples, I guess, of creative or unconventional ways that you've seen young folks engage with politics? Like whether it's sort of interesting ways of engaging within the electoral system or things that people do kind of outside. I think one of the areas where young people have an immense amount of influence is is culturally, right? So when it comes to public awareness, when it comes to building awareness, young people are always sort of at the forefront or like the leading edge of like culture. So Honestly, there's so many creative ways that young people can influence like broader discourse. And you see it on social media all the time. Things will go viral. People will find new ways of framing things. Very creative sort of endeavors that do ultimately have an impact on our broader cultural conversation. And I think we see it too. Like I've definitely seen how different levels of government have responded to cultural shifts and social movements over the last number of years. You see very explicit policies, you know, making investments in different communities, specific equity focus on a lot of funding. So I think that that's really cool to see. And it's it's quite clear that that's coming from a push from the public to make change. I've heard of campaigns where young people like yarn bomb a monument to like you know, like to, to like draw attention to something or like, I think you can be incredibly creative and have an impact. I mean, protest is always a way to do that also. And I think that that's another area where young people excel, which is disruption. Here in Nova Scotia, there are, are so many things that are happening with, I would say, like environmental racism and access to justice that the youth are 
leading and the things that they're doing is impacting big decisions, even if they know that those big decisions maybe aren't happening because of the work that they're doing. They're just organizing for each other and they're organizing for their communities, whether it's like a radio show or a protest that's happening or like a healing gathering that's happening or like an art show or just like podcasts and Instagram feeds and just them being vocal and organizing like with themselves for themselves. Under the age of 25, there's a lot of research that shows that young people, like you you hear that your brain is like, quote unquote, still developing until around the age of 25. But one of the things that happens between the ages of 16 and 25 is that your brain is actually like hardwired differently than older adults. So mm-hmm. you're less risk averse. You're more likely to like think outside the box, be creative, find different solutions and have less reverence for like the way that things have always been done. It's a really innovative period of life. And I think culturally speaking here, we don't necessarily value that the same way as we do like workplace experience. Yeah, like just literally the amount of time you've been alive as opposed to like what has happened during that time. Yeah. When you have those two things combined, it's like super powerful. If we had a bunch of people who are like really great project managers working with people who have these really innovative ideas, you can like make so much happen. But we tend to create this like tension between those two groups that doesn't need to be there because it's like, oh, the people with experience need to like fight with the people who want to do things differently. And it's like, I actually think that a shift in that respect would would do so much for us, like politically. I would say that youth are overtly underestimated. One of my favorite quotes ever, and it was said by Calgary Mayor Nenshi and Calgary Mayor Gondek. And they both kind of said that youth are the leaders of tomorrow, but that doesn't stop them from being the leaders of today. And so that's kind of my mantra and what I think about Whereas lots of people think, okay, yeah, they're young now. We'll give it to them in 40 years when they're ready. I have sort of a perspective on this that's rooted in knowing a lot of young people that are involved in partisan politics. But I think one thing that I see if I'm looking at like the broader internet and not just people that I personally know is a lot of people seem to be like very skeptical of partisan politics amongst like younger age cohorts. So to what extent do you see youth engaging in partisan politics versus, like, the more ideology or issue-based movements that we were talking about before in terms of, like, people maybe getting involved in climate organizing as opposed to involved with a political party? I think it's really hard to measure sometimes because it's not super straightforward. And and as you say, like, people will use the tools that they think are going to have the most impact. So if people are turning away from electoral politics or, or find them objectionable, then they may choose other things. I don't find any one party has what I'm looking for, whether it be a leader and policy that I trust, or maybe they'll have one but not the other. And a lot of the times it just comes down to choosing a lesser evil, which is kind of a horrible thing to have to say. I would say that I'm more ideologically driven than I am partisan. And that's just because I feel like even though in Canada, we technically have a multi-party system, Traditionally, in terms of looking at just the trends of political history, only two parties have held political office federally. I personally don't see myself fitting within neatly within either of those two parties. And I feel like a lot of people within my generation would probably agree with that to some extent. I don't think I would say that I follow a certain political party federally. And so I try and look at the candidate, not necessarily the party, because I don't agree with one party wholeheartedly. 
some are good economically, some are good socially, and some are not either. And so it's really up to me for the candidate. And that's why I love municipal politics, because it's really all about the candidate. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. So social media, it's difficult for me to really like, as a person who's been on social media for at this point, like half of my life, to really describe like how it affects my engagement with politics. Because first of all, the way that I am able to use social media has changed so much. Like, 10 years ago, I was getting all my news off Facebook, and now you, like, can't get news on Facebook at all, basically, <laughs> as of a couple weeks ago. You know, but also, like, which platforms are the most used and which platforms are the most used by young people specifically has, like, shifted so much. So how do you see the use of social media factoring into young people's political engagement? And, you know, how do you, like, navigate, I guess, the challenge of like, speaking to people on social media and, like, causing people to think it's worthwhile to be engaged even. Because I feel like a lot of the time, the discussion I see is not inspiring, let's just say. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, social media. Yeah. I think it's it's a really complex question because, as you say, like, it changes so rapidly. Okay, I'm, I'm 33 years old, almost 34. Like, I went through high school without social media which I might be sort of at the tail end of that experience. And so my engagement with social media is different than someone who's, you know, 10 years younger than me or even five years younger than me. I use TikTok, Instagram, Snapchat. I do have Twitter or I guess X. I do have Reddit, although I barely use it, and Discord. I use TikTok pretty often. I have Instagram as well. And I recently started using LinkedIn as a social media platform. I'm pretty much just relegated to Instagram. I feel like at this point in my life, Instagram's my sort of happy place. I primarily use Instagram for news and stuff, but sometimes Facebook also and Twitter. I find social media is like a race to the bottom half the time and you're just being shown like the most extreme version of any issue. There was something I read recently, the Public Policy Forum just came out with a polarization report that I think is really fascinating in its analysis of like how polarization has sort of developed and like, is Canada polarized? And like, how do we understand that? And I think we tend to think of political polarization or like affective polarization, they call it as like 
oh, I'm a member of this party and I hate people from that party and we're going to fight about stuff. And and I think in Canada, it's so much more nuanced than that. And one of the things that they said in that report was actually that there's something about social media because of the algorithms that drives you towards like-minded people, whatever that looks like. So if you identify as being someone who's like quite politically progressive or more conservative, whatever... Over time, social media algorithms will find people who like look like you and then sort of feed you into that sort of bubble. And what ends up happening is you find these communities. And this is what I thought was brilliant. This quote, you find these communities of comforting rage. And I was like, "Ooh, that's that's a term. And I think that's where we kind of have this like addiction to social media and then also this like disgust at social media at the same time because it's feeding, it's very much affecting our emotions and the way that we process the information that we're reading on there. It's not an unmoderated experience. It is very much a moderated experience. And so I think when we're having political discourse happening on Twitter or happening on Instagram or whatever, we we almost have to stop and remember like, oh, we're actually engaging with people that we're being fed to one way or another, that we're being artificially sort of brought into space with. In the same way that we've benefited from social media and the way that we can organize, we have also suffered a little bit in that, on the whole, we sometimes or quite often lack a lot of media literacy. The ability to see things as more complex. Yes, we look for multiple perspectives, but oftentimes we end up just choosing one instead of deciding that multiple facets of different ones can be true. I think, especially with the presence of social media, you're very quick to shut people down or you kind of get into these silos of you just want to stick around with people who are like-minded as you and there's less of an interest in wanting to really have that conversation with someone who maybe doesn't have the same viewpoints because you just know you're going to butt heads and it's like, you know what, they just don't get it, they don't care. But I think what we have to remember ultimately is that in a democracy, we are making decisions with the people that live around us. That is it. We have to find ways to talk to, deal with, and, you know, even if we dislike everything about our neighbor, we still have to decision make theoretically with them about the future of the place that we live. And I think that's what gets lost on social media. It's so borderless and boundaryless, which is really amazing. And then on the flip side, it makes us forget that like we have this real world around us that we have to be engaging with also. One is not a substitute for the other. They're just different. Mm-hmm. And that's where I, I see it like influencing people's perspectives on like electoral politics, for example, or like broader democracy. Yeah, I think people <laughs> people need to touch grass. Like that's like one of the few that's one of the few like sort of relatively like Zoomer slang terms that as soon as I heard it, I was like, yeah, you know what? Like whoever popularized that, like they were right to do that because we've needed a phrase for exactly this thing. So a couple things. I want to kind of stick with talking about social media, but also talk a little bit about, you know, kind of the sorts of conversations that happen and also how people use social media as a means of knowledge acquisition. So are there ways that social media is sort of unique in the way that it lets youth interact with policy discussions or political leaders, either, you know, for good or for bad? And then is social media, like, still useful for people to get news? Like, is that how people are getting their news? I don't want to be that person who sitting here being like, don't get your news on social media. I think that what troubles me is the ease with which people can... And and I think without malice, like spread misinformation on social media. And I think now that we don't have any, you know, quote unquote, like traditional media on Instagram, for example, or Facebook or whatever, I worry that 
the content that will spread will be the point of view, not point of view, whatever videos of someone talking about the news. But there's no accountability there if you, you know, share information that's not verified or if you're sharing a news article, but like missing a key detail. There's no there's no check and balance on that. It's just spreading. And again, as we said before, if if social media is a race to the bottom, then the content that's the most polarizing or that touches on that comforting rage or whatever the case may be. If that's the piece that's spreading, then that will be the person's perspective on the issue that's being discussed. I hate to sound like, you know, that damn technology, but a lot of this can also be traced back to social media. The need to make information bite-sized to be able to be processed in five, ten seconds means that we oversimplify issues when they really cannot be. When you simplify an issue that really shouldn't be, or when you take away a lot of the information that provides context that gives you time to think and consider what you're reading and what you're interacting with, you end up making snap decisions and not reflecting on them. And those build up over time. You start with just deciding that you read a headline about a government bill and you don't go back to the article. And then you see another opinion piece, but just the headline from said op-ed. And it keeps growing and growing. If you're only consuming from one news source or one side of the aisle of that news source of that bite-sized information, it's going to push you further in that direction, regardless of what side that is. Is there any story or any particular anecdote that you have that illustrates how young people's political engagement was able to really influence some sort of outcome politically? I mean, I think a really good one to always go back to is is the Carré Rouge, like, student protests in Quebec in 2012. And I was fortunate enough to be in university at that time, so I think that I saw that from a different angle. But I think we often forget that many students, you know, basically kicked a government out of power. <laughs> like, that, was, it was wild. And, and that was through disruption. That was through continuous protest. It was through direct action and defending the principles of an affordable education. And I think that that was really laudable. And like, I remember being in it at the time and like, you know, people calling the students selfish and impractical. I think coming back to that idea before, like impractical, like, oh no, we have to increase the price of tuition. Do we? Like actually asking that question, do we need to raise the price of tuition? Do we not have values in Quebec around affordable education for everyone? What does that mean in practice? And are there other places where we can find money to cover this because it's important to us collectively. And now one of the leaders of that movement is now a you know co-spokesperson for Quebec Solidaire, the political party. So he went into politics and has been continuing to, you know, ring the bell on those values since. And I also just want to touch, uh, I think earlier this week in the U.S., in Montana, there were a group of young people who sued the legislature of Montana because the Montana state constitution has a clause in it that that protects people's rights to like a clean environment. And they basically sued the government and said, no, uh, actually, the decisions that you're making to approve mining projects or to approve oil and gas extraction or whatever the case was, is actually against our constitution and against our constitutional rights in the state. And they actually won. And so, like, there are really innovative, interesting ways that young people will participate. And that was a case where they did have the collaboration of a law firm that was focused on helping young people sue governments over climate change. But that's one of those collaborative moments where these young people came forward and brought this case with their help and were successful. And now, of course, it's going to be appealed and all of that. But I just want to encourage everyone to, like, seek out difference and and 
and develop resilience in conversations with people who disagree with you. I think that we often get funneled into conversations with people that we agree with. And, and I worry about our muscle to tolerate difference. I think we could touch grass every once in a while, <laughs> like talk to the people around us and really build our, build our democratic muscle intentionally. Have a conversation. Just sit down and talk to a youth in your life and see what their issues are and don't get defensive if they bring up something, but listen. So you heard it here first. Listen to the young people in your life. When I think about the people who've been most formative in my life as a teenager and into young adulthood, they were the family members, mentors, and teachers who listened to me and actually took my opinions seriously, even and perhaps especially when they didn't agree with me. These days, though, I sometimes feel like it's futile to have opinions or to care about anything at all. When I think about my friend circle, the people I went to college with and that I talk to every day, there's a real sense of nihilism in the air. Why bother finishing a degree or going to work or making plans with your partner for the future when our country and our world just seem to be moving from crisis to crisis? It's incredibly tempting to disengage politically, especially if you're relatively insulated from the worst of today's crises and can just cocoon at home watching your ambient content of choice. But for many people, engagement in politics is a necessity. The decisions being made in Parliament and in provincial legislatures are of existential significance to their lives. Why do I care? Because I have to. And everything that we do is political. And that's like, I'm learning that more and more. Like, everything that we do when we step outside, especially as a Black person in Nova Scotia or in this country, like, everything that we do is political. I just can't help but be passionate because it affects every aspect of my life and my family's life and my community's life and the younger generation and the generations to come. I think the reason why I care so much is because I'm seeing the communities that I grew up in become uprooted because of climate or because of, I guess, the recession, for example. And I'm seeing the people that I love lose their jobs or have to downgrade their homes or relocate to different, more livable cities or even relocate to different countries. And I'm seeing parks that I grew up going to or ponds that I used to fish in with my father suddenly have no fish anymore. Seeing those previous creature comforts and those loved ones and the communities that you find yourself a part in transition and change so much, even throughout like the very finite level of experience that I've had thus far in my life, has made me, I guess, a little bit more passionate about seeing the future in a more optimistic way, but also with a healthy level of skepticism as well. All right, let's adjourn. That's been The Backbench. We'll talk again in two weeks when school will be fully back in and Parliament will be back in session, baby. Let's rock and roll. If you've been following what happens in Ottawa, let us know what you've been watching closely, what you'd like to hear us discuss, and what esoteric Canadian politics content you want us to break down. Send us your questions, your concerns, and your rants. You can email us at backbench at candleland.com, and we're also on Twitter at backbenchcast. I'm Matea Roach, and you can find me on Twitter at Matea Roach. I only recently learned that that Oh Captain, My Captain poem that's in Dead Poets Society, a movie that I still haven't watched, was written by Walt Whitman about Abraham Lincoln and not actually about Robin Williams, the teacher. 
Uh, crazy stuff. I never knew that before, but now I do, and so do you. This episode was produced by Aviva Lassard and Noor Azriye with additional production by Caleb Thompson. Our managing editor is Annette Ejofo, and our editor-in-chief is Karen Pugliese. Theme music is by Nathan Burley. If you value this podcast, support us. You'll get premium access to all our shows ad-free, including early releases and bonus content. You'll also get our exclusive newsletter, discounts on merch, tickets to our live and virtual events, and more than anything, you'll be a part of the solution to Canada's journalism crisis by keeping our work free and accessible to everybody. You can listen ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Thank you for listening. Hey, it's Matea, reminding you that this show cannot be made without you. If you've been thinking about becoming a Canada Land supporter, we're having a pretty great sale right now. You'll get premium ad-free feeds of all Canada Land shows, discounts on merch from our store, and exclusive bonus episodes, like a behind-the-scenes tour of the federal budget lockup, more of Boris Johnson's trip to Canada, and of course, more of us yapping about what's hot in politics right now. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Canada Land supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special offer for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. Just go to canadaland.com slash join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.